Morning, church. Today's reading is taken from Philippians, the second chapter, verses 5 to 11. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by being obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at that name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Thanks, Jane. Um, if you can get... Um, we're going through a, a topical series, Apostles' Creed, and... Um, so we're not, normally we go through a book of the Bible or a section of the Bible together, but we're going to uh, jump around a bit as we go through the Apostles' Creed. But let's pray that God's word will still go out and speak to us this morning. Lord, we thank you so much that your word is powerful and that it shapes us. Um, it's created the world and it shapes us to be your disciples. And Lord, we pray now that your word will speak to us, to our mind and hearts. In Jesus' name. We pray. Amen. There are many things that we take for granted in the world um, that are, if we think about it, indispensable and very, very important. And I think the heart is like that. You, you don't think about it. You don't will it to beat every day, but it just beats, you know, every second. It, it, it beats uh, and it gives you life. Your heart beats over 10, 100,000 times a day. Uh, it pumps out 5.6 liters of blood every minute. So think about that. This is one liter. 5.6 liters of blood every minute, which means it's 8,064 uh, 8, liters a day. There are 600,000, uh, 60,000 miles of blood vessels in your body, which is long enough, actually, to go around the world twice. Twice. Every cell in your body, except your cells in cornea, are fed by uh, the blood that's pumped by, this blo uh, by, by the heart. But in the U.S., heart disease is the number one cause of death. It is such an important organ, but we sometimes take it for granted. Uh, we neglect it. And when it comes to the second part, second part of this creed, second section of the creed of the Apostles' Creed, I think we're coming to the heart of the creed. And in many ways, we also take it for granted. We read it and we go, well, yeah, of course, yes, yes, I believe that, I believe that. But because it's so important, because it's so fundamental, it's good to slow down and take a look at it and be fed by it. Because getting it wrong could mean spiritual death for us. And this second section starts with the profession. 
that not, we don't believe in some philosophy or some ethics or political theory or way of living in this world, but that we believe in a person called Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago. In fact, Jesus is Lord was probably the earliest confession of faith with emphasis on Jesus. Jesus is Lord. For example, Paul writes to Romans here that if you declare with your, with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart um, that he has been raised from the dead, you will be saved. He says that you cannot, in Corinthians, you cannot make this confession on your own, that you you need the help of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit needs to help you to realize that Jesus is Lord in order to confess this. Well, why was it such an important confession? Why is it such a fundamental confession? Well, because it wasn't so obvious. We take it for granted, but it wasn't so obvious that the world thought that Jesus is Lord. Uh, You might know that the name Jesus means Yahweh saves, Yahweh saves. But actually, it was a fairly common name with at least three people in the New Testament who's also named Jesus. There are other Jesuses. But Paul says um, that you need the Spirit to confess this. And the climax of our reading today um, is Philippians chapter 2, 11. And every tongue confess and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. At the end of history, what we will see is throngs of humanity gathered. Whether they recognized him as their Lord here on earth or not, they will bow their knee and confess that Jesus is Lord. Why is it such a fundamental confession? Well, because the Lord means many things. It means our master, but also it means uh, more than that, that he is Yahweh God. Yahweh God. Remember in Exodus chapter 3 when Moses went to God and asked, what is your name? What should I tell people? Well, he, he said um, that this is, uh, uh, that I am who I am, Eya, Esher, Eya, which became pronounced as sort of Yahweh, right? Moses, um, but, but Jewish people didn't call, uh, but I don't call my dad by his name, um, I, out of respect, um, I don't, and actually, when my parents were visiting um, home, Barney actually called me Hugh, and my parents just burst it out in laughter, because we don't do that in Korean culture. We don't call our parents by name, out of respect for the parents, and the Jewish people didn't do that either. When it came to God's name, Yahweh, they didn't say Yahweh. They actually said Adonai, Lord, which means Lord. So in the Old Testament, whenever Yahweh's name came, they read it as Lord. That's why confessing Jesus is Lord is done. It can only be done by the power of the Spirit because what it's recognizing is that Jesus, this historical person, is Yahweh God revealed in, the, in and through the Old Testament. That's, why we're confess- that's what we're confessing when we say that Jesus, uh, when we see this line, that Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God, but emptied himself and made himself nothing, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and more than that, that Jesus is God himself. And that's why I think that little phrase, suffered under Pontius Pilate, it's such an important phrase. 
Because Pontius Pilate, you know, didn't, if you look at it, it doesn't, he doesn't belong in the creed. This is an august, important creed. What's Pontius Pilate doing here? Pontius Pilate is there because he is an indisputable fact of history. He was the fifth governor of the Roman province of Judea. He anchors Jesus also in history. Jesus was a real person. He claimed to be Yahweh God, and that's what we're confessing in the Apostles' Creed, that he is Jesus, historical person, the Messiah, the promised one, the Son of God, and Yahweh God himself. Friends, Christian faith isn't about confessing some general idea, truths about the world. It is a fact of history. It is a person. It's confessing this person of history. It's the belief that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, our Lord. So, as we begin, let's go back to the basics, shall we? Uh, the next slide, please. What do, you make, what do you make Christianity to be? What do you make Christianity to be? Because we often know that Jesus is, Christianity is all about confessing Jesus as our Lord, confessing Jesus as God, our Savior, but we then make it out to be all sorts of other things. We make it out to be some rules that we need to follow. We make it out to be about being blessed. We make it out to be something about influencing the culture or this nation. Pastors like me make it about not building the church, growing the church. It might result in all these things, but as we stand each week As we confess this creed each week, what we're saying is Christianity is fundamentally about our relationship with this person of Jesus. Jesus, God who became a human being, our Messiah, the Son of God, and our Yahweh God. That is what our faith is all about. But after having made this great confession about Jesus' identity, we then quickly move to a fact that something, something that people sneer at, the, the fact of the virgin birth. Have you heard people say, say things like, well, Jesus was probably an illegitimate child um, and, and over time mythologized to become um, this son of God? How could a virgin give birth? And some people minimize the importance of this doctrine. Famously, Rob Bell, I don't know if you know that name. Rob Bell was an, is an ex-pastor who uh, said infamously that it wouldn't be a big deal if we discovered that Jesus has a dad named Larry somewhere. Well, Bell suggests why it's not important. He says, well, it's not important because Jesus' um, way of life, it's still important. It's the best way of living. But he's wrong. <laughs> he's wrong. Jesus is only important because he is who he said he was, because we confess that Jesus is the Son of God, Yahweh God himself being incarnate. He's wrong because this uh, doctrine of virgin birth is an important doctrine for us. And it wasn't like people back then, you know, 2,000 years ago, thought that virgins could give birth all the time. You know, th- th- this was an incredible thing for them to believe. Mary herself says, how can this be? to the angel, since I am a virgin. But the idea, uh, idea of the miraculous birth is something that we are prepared for in the Bible. People who know the Bible, the Old Testament, shouldn't be surprised of a miraculous birth because there's a long tradition and history of it, right? Sarah, 
Abraham's wife, she gave birth to Isaac when she was 90. This was a miraculous birth. Zora is introduced as a barren woman in the book of Judges until the angel of the Lord comes and gives her a son named Samson. Hannah, who was known to be barren, begged God, and God miraculously answers her prayers and gives uh, her Samuel. And of course, Elizabeth and Zechariah, who are old and barren in Luke 1, childless, they give this miraculous birth to John the Baptist. All this anticipates this great birth, the virgin birth in G- through Jesus, uh, virgin birth uh, through Mary. You see, all this anticipates, uh, this is about how God operates. God has been operating in this way. Well, why? Two things. One is that um, childbirth in the Old Testament was very important. God emphasizes this childbearing um, birth uh, because it, it was a very important thing in the Old Testament. Why is it important? Because of the history because of the promise that God made to Adam and Eve. Next slide, please. Your offspring, he says, will crush, your, uh, crush the, the serpent's head and you will strike his heel. Remember this promise that the offspring of, uh, the, of, of Eve will crush the serpent's head. What this meant was that every birth in the Jewish line could be the sign, is a sign of hope. The, the next child could be the serpent crusher. The next one in the line of David could be the Messiah. And the birth of each newborn was a reminder that God was going to fulfill this promise, that Satan was going to be crushed. So when things were impossible, God emphasized this, got these miraculous birth stories to prepare us. But why the virgin birth? Well, the virgin birth says that this is God's doing, not our own. That our salvation comes from God, and it's not something that we can accomplish ourselves. Salvation isn't accomplished by having a great human king, even if as good as David was, or as good um, of a ruler, um, the next ruler, having a good ruler. We cannot save ourselves by having another human ruler because of our own sinful nature, because of the world around us, because of the Satan that is in this world. Salvation is impossible on our own. But what is impossible on our own is possible with God. And when we have come to our wit's end, when we don't have any other options and we realize that we cannot save ourselves, God steps in into history and says, I am going to give you a Savior. I am going to save you. Salvation comes from God, and it's a gift that we receive. I don't know what kind of a week that you've had. Maybe you've had one of these miserable weeks when you, are, you realize that the world is sinful. You, are, you just think, how is this world going to get any better? Maybe you had a miserable week yourself and, and you think, well, how am I going to save? How am I ever going to be saved? Because I failed in so many, many different ways. I don't think I can get any better. Friends, the good news is that God has sent a Savior 
It's not you who's going to save yourself. It's not some human ruler that's going to save the world. It's God who became a human being who has come to save us. And what we need to do is to receive it with gladness as a gift from God. God has come to save us through Christ. And that's why that salvation, that story of virgin birth goes quickly to not to his life, Jesus' life. You see, in the Apostles' Creed, it's missing Jesus' teaching and his life. It goes straight into, the next slide please, his suffering, his death, and the resurrection. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. And from our reading today, and being found in appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Because the most remarkable thing about Christianity, the most remarkable thing about Jesus isn't actually him becoming a human being, him doing great teaching that people still follow 2,000 years later. But the most remarkable thing about Jesus is that he became a human being so that he could suffer and die on the cross for us. That he came to die because that was his mission and that he hung on the cross. And that fact is important because Deuteronomy tells us that anyone who hangs on the tree is cursed. He became a curse for us so that he might share his blessings for us. And then the next line, he's descended to the dead. And there are some who say that, um, that this means that Jesus went down to hell and suffered and was tortured. Uh, and some say that Jesus went down to the place of the dead to preach, and that as if um, the people who are dead maybe for a second chance, um, that they could hear the gospel um, down there. But the scripture is clear. Hebrews 9, 27, we're destined to die. I mean, we're destined to die once, and after that to face judgment. The most likely meaning of he descended to the dead just means that he really died that he was a human being. God united himself with humanity, and he died. He really died. And he went to the place, like Sheol, place of resting for those who are dead. And he really died. And this is what, then, this means for us. Jesus knows what it's like to live here on earth. Here on earth, with all its problems, with all its sins, with all its sufferings, he knows what your life is like. Jesus knows what it means to be dying, to suffer, to have pain in his body. Jesus knows. God knows. Jesus knows what it means to be dead, to be in that place of waiting, to be that unnatural place where the soul is separated from the body and waiting for the resurrection. Jesus knows. And he also knows what it means to come back to life. He rose again from the dead. He defeated death, opening up a whole new possibility and reality for us because God united himself with humanity. Divinity united himself with uh, our humanity. Our humanity is healed. This is how uh, early church father Irenaeus put it. Human nature is changed by this union. Mortality joins hands with immortality. The grave becomes the beginning of life. Because Jesus lived. He united himself. He, he became a human being. Our humanity is changed. What happens to death 
has changed. He says it becomes a beginning of life. Of course, this has enormous implications in how we live in this life, how we face suffering, how we face death. And for we will talk about that on the Resurrection Sunday, on Easter Day, as we talk about our resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. So come back um, for that. But for now, I would love for us to ponder on just the undeserved grace in all of this. How many times have you skipped helping somebody, right? Because you think, you said, oh, you texted, I'm sorry, I can't do it today. Not because you really can't, but because you didn't want to. You know, how many times have you skipped church meetings or whatever? Because, well, not because we really couldn't, but because, well, I just, I don't want to. I, I didn't want to. We often neglect to love even those who are good to us because we're often lazy, self-centered, sinful. But God made a permanent change in his very being. God took on the flesh so that he could suffer under Pontius Pilate, die, so he could be buried and descend to the place of the dead so that he could rise again, so that he could bring us to that place of salvation. Amazing love, how can it be? If there's anything that you walk away from today, I hope you do walk away from the sense of gratitude for what God has done for you. So he died, he rose again, but his work wasn't over. And that's what the next um, section means, that he is working for us now. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. He ascended into heaven. You might think that he just went to heaven, his rightful place of rest. But that's not what this means. That he abandoned us to leave us be so that he could have a little bit of a rest, rest comfortably in heaven. Now, what ascension and sitting on the throne doesn't mean that he's getting a rest. This is what it means. His sitting at the right hand of the Father means his public enthronement over all worldly powers. It's him taking his rightful place as the ruler of the universe. So his ascension and sitting at the right hand of the Father signifies that he is ruling over the world now, that he is sitting there now. And that's why we can have confidence in this life. You know, two weeks ago, when we talked about the God, God the Father, we talked about how we can take comfort in the fact that God is almighty, that he knows all things, that he can do all things. And because he is good, we can take comfort when we go through things that we don't understand. We can have confidence that our Father is watching over us. But here's another reason that we can go through this world and this life with confidence as well, because it's Jesus who's sitting on the throne, ruling over the world. And when I look at uh, my life and all sorts of things that I've gone through, some, of the, uh, some painful things that I've gone through, I see sometimes some wisdom in what God has done. Right? Uh, my failures brought in some ways me to London and to this great church where I can be trained uh, for ministry. My failures, my failed relationship has brought me to Hong Kong and I see God's wisdom in that as painful as that was death of my cousin taught me something great about God and how greater God is um, than what I think he is. Of course, I don't understand 
details. I don't understand why some of these things have happened, but because I know that this person who died on the cross is sitting there on the throne of God, ruling over the affairs of humanity, I'm confident that he knows what he's doing, that I'm confident I can go through the difficulties in life, looking at him, trusting him. I'm confident in this life. I'm confident also when I think about the future. Judgment. Uh, public speaking is really not my gift. Um, when I speak, I have to really, I have to write everything down. I have to practice and work at it. But when I go somewhere, like St. Andrews or something, and I see uh, you know, a great uh, group of people, uh, some, one thing that I do is maybe search for somebody that I know, <laughs> somebody who already thinks well of me, somebody who, who I know will judge me in, in love, like Mary. I see her face, and then I'm sort of comforted. Uh, but on that day of judgment, when Jesus comes back, friends, if we look at our life and what we've done, there will be no confidence whatsoever God knows what you've done, every single thing. God knows what you've done in the secret. God knows what you have thought, what you are thinking now. God knows every single thing. If we look at our life, even the person who's lived the best life will not have any confidence. But we will look up on the throne of judgment. We'll look up at the judgment seat and we'll see Jesus with the scars in his arms. Maybe the scars, maybe that are visible on his forehead. Somebody who died and suffered for me. I'll look at him and I'll have all the confidence that I, I can approach that throne with confidence because him who saved me is the one who is judging me. And he'll say, he is mine, whom I paid for. I suffered for him. Confident in this life and confident in that life to come. Friends, I believe in Jesus Christ our Lord is the heartbeat of this creed, the heartbeat of the Christian life. And they speak of this unbelievable fact of God becoming a human being, unbelievable grace of Jesus Christ, the undeserved love and the confidence that we can have in Him, in this life, in a life to come. It is a season of Lent, and I hope you are spending extra time reflecting on God and his, your relationship with Him, and I hope you, you, you will reflect on this amazing fact that Jesus Christ came for you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that these words that we have heard, I believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Lord, gives me life. We thank you that this is the heartbeat of Christianity, belief in uh, this Savior who has come for me. And Lord, we pray that as we reflect on this, for those of us who don't yet know you, that you will infuse your life uh, to them. You will breathe your life to them. 
that they could con confess with their mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in their hearts that God has raised you from the dead, that they too might come to know you as their Lord and Savior and have this new life in you. And for us, Lord, we pray that you'll help us to reflect on this deeper and know that this, um, this essential truth is sustaining us now and will sustain us for eternity. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.